There we go. Okay. Thank you. So I have a blog at I'd rather be writing.com where I explore a lot of the trends, issues, whatever blog topics uh, that we want to write that I want to write about. I also have some guest posters and so forth. Uh, but that's really where uh, people know me. I also work uh, for a nonprofit in Salt Lake City uh, as a technical writer. So um, I do a lot of the same things that most technical writers do. I create online help material. I create quick reference guides. I create. Uh, I also work on a technology blog, so I do a lot of um, web articles about the different technologies our group is producing and things like that. And one of the topics that I've been fascinated by is uh, the topic of findability. And uh, I kind of position this in in a different terms. I call it organizing help content, trying to figure out how to organize things. Um, I had a project a while back that kind of really uh, pointed me in this direction and tried to f- made me try to wrestle with this problem. And I'm sure you've had this similar problem. Uh, I had a, a somewhat large help system. It wasn't that large, really, but it was maybe 200, 350 topics, uh, maybe, maybe not even that many. But uh, I was trying to find the ideal sort of arrangement for the table of contents, trying to figure out what's the perfect order so that users come in and they look at this table of contents and they see, oh, exactly where to go to find their help content. And I kept, you know, tweaking the table of contents and changing the organization and putting some uh, subfolders and moving them this way and that way. And finally came to the conclusion that uh, that it was somewhat of a, a futile effort because even when you when I came to a conclusion or came to an organization that I thought was, was perfect, uh, the users didn't see that at all. I had a completely different logic than, than they did. And, and the users had had individual logics about how things should be organized. And uh, I think that in the help space, we deal with large numbers of discrete information topics. And and a lot of times people have help systems with thousands of topics. So it even compounds the problem. If, so for us, the problem and topic of findability should be pretty paramount. Um, we write help, and we want to get that help right in in front of the user so they can they can find it yet we have hundreds of different places and and topics for them to choose from so how do they how do they find that how do we make it so that it's not this art this arduous struggle for them to find Uh, so that's essentially the problem and it's best illustrated by an example Um, so i have a friend in idaho who uh, she says that whenever she goes into the grocery store, she can never find fresh coconut cream. Uh, or this is a, this is one of those things that is almost impossible to find. Uh, where where would you put this in your grocery store? Uh, or where would you look for it? Would you look near the coconuts, for example? Uh, would you go to the cream section, the milk and so forth, the dairy, and try to look for it there? Or because it's a canned good, would you look in the canned goods aisle? Or maybe you would look in the dessert section, since perhaps it's used for desserts. Or or maybe it's an ethnic food, and so you'd consult the ethnic food aisle. Um, I I continually find this problem whenever I'm in the grocery store. I, I cannot locate different things. And part of the reason is that uh, help topics and, and a lot of different types of content can be grouped in multiple ways. So as an analogy, 
maybe another analogy for this situation is the platypus. It's uh, one of those things that could be grouped and classified in a lot of different ways. It lays eggs. It's venomous. It has a beaver's tail, otter feet, and a duck's bill. So, you know, if you're trying to classify this in the biological kingdom, uh, it seems like you could put it in a lot of different places. Um, and help topics are the same way. They're kind of like the platypus or this uh, coconut cream. You could put them in this aisle or you could put them in that aisle or this this category or that category. It all just kind of depends on the context and the use and the background understanding and meaning. And so it's understandable that nobody can find help content and they look at help help systems and say it's useless. You know, it doesn't have the information I need and people don't have very much patience to really search for it. So, or to, to navigate and browse or to really try to find it. So it becomes this, this, uh, really sore problem. Um, there was a, there's a, uh, a great story with, uh, Dmitry Mendeleev. who was a Russian scientist who organized the periodic table of elements and there's a there's a great show on this uh, that tells a story. Radio Lab is a podcast. If you've never heard it, it's a great podcast. And they're talking about how Mendeleev was trying to figure out the order of the table, of, the periodic table of contents. You had all these elements, and of course, not all had been discovered at the time. You have all these elements, and you try to figure out well, how should they be arranged? What's the perfect order? And he would ride around on trains in Russia with a stack of cards that had all the elements on them, maybe short descriptions on the back or something, and he would flip them around in different arrangements arrangements and orders as he rode the trains, which is kind of fascinating to think that somebody has so much le- leisure that they can just kind of ride around on trains and meditate on the order of scientific elements. But he did that. And the hosts on Radio Lab relate uh, that that one day, as he's been riding around on these trains and trying to figure out the right order for all these discrete elements and and so forth, it just snapped in his mind this perfect grid about how they should be arranged, and he arranged it, and that is what we have today as the periodic table of elements. Well, now if you look at that table of elements, it makes sense from a scientific point of view. Uh, they they have uh, now, I don't know all the details, but of course the atomic structures have some kind of repeating patterns and so forth, and that's those repeating patterns are what led to people predicting other elements that would later be discovered. But uh, I think that, that there's really no absolute order out there. Even though you have these scientists who, who look for this underlying order that makes everything uh, make sense, when it comes to information, there isn't an exact table of contents to suddenly snap together in my mind in a perfect logical sense. Because people think different ways and they have different understandings and different um, situations. So rather than trying to find this key ingredient to findability that's going to solve it uh, in one shot, that's going to be like the answer to making it so that the user finds the the topic every time. I think there are different techniques that we can use that will contribute towards a greater findability. Uh, And and perhaps you could see it as little pieces of a pie. Uh, Every piece maybe contributes 10%. And when you add them all up, the, the total findability dramatically increases. So I'm going to talk about search, metadata, 
user research, indexes and glossaries, quick reference guides, personal, personalization, interface text, tags and categories, alternative modes, and level-based learning. And I actually have another five, too, that I could go through. But, but I think each of these techniques um, are things that you could do that would, that would help your content be more findable by users. So let's talk about search, which I think is one of the big ones. Google works, so why not simply imitate it? Um, this is a this is a good question, and I'm not really attacking this. I think search is integral and and perhaps one of the most important ways that we can improve findability. Um, however, there's kind of some some false analogies with Google. It 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 doesn't necessarily. Uh, it's the, it doesn't fit exactly into our help systems for a lot of different reasons. Um, but, but first, let me explain a few SEO factors. SEO just stands for search engine optimization. So if you want to be found on Google, uh, you want to be highly visible, here's what you need to do. You need to have a lot of links pointing to your site. So this is somewhat out of your control, but the more people linking back to you, the more your site's visibility increases. And not just anybody pointing back to you, because then you could go and create a thousand uh, fresh sites on Blogger or WordPress and just immediately point them back to you. The authority of the sites counts. So authority is determined by PageRank, um, which is a custom algorithm that Google developed after Larry Page, one of their founders, to uh, determine whether uh, the credibility of sites and the how how much influence and authority they have. So you're ranked on a scale of like one to Ten. I don't think I've ever seen a ten other than maybe Google itself. Um, sites like the New York Times and other highly credible sites, I think, only get like a nine. Um, so another key factor is the text that people use in those links needs to be descriptive of of what people are searching for. So they can't just write "click here" and it goes to your site. Well, that doesn't tell the Google search engine much. It has to be like. You know, to read more about Acme system or whatever, and that word used in the link makes a huge difference. Finally, so those are all kind of out of your control, sort of. Uh, the better content you write means that more people are going to link back to you. So it's not totally out of your control. You can write great content and nobody could hear you, but eventually they will, and they'll link to you. Also, the frequency of, of keywords on your own site uh, and keywords that match what the user is looking for, uh, especially in the title, the first paragraph, uh, the heading tags. If you target those keywords, it does influence. It, it does influence things. I once, while I was a teacher, uh, years ago, I once created a site called 10, Step, 10 Steps to Writing an Essay," and I totally optimized it for for the word steps to writing uh, or steps for writing an essay. So now if you search for it, it's, it's still pretty high up, even though I haven't updated the site for like eight years. Um, finally, uh, your own site's page rank uh, matters. And page rank is determined by a number of things, uh, how long your site's been around, how much content you push through, how many links are coming back, and so forth. Uh, most, uh, most sites have a page rank between like four and six, I'm thinking. Um, all right, so so these are our SEO factors, and 
I don't know that uh, when we're writing help, we hardly we ever consider these. In all honesty, uh, it's enough to try to figure out what to write in a complicated help top topic, and and then to try to add in SEO to make it findable is another arduous task. And you'll find that all of these all of these um, efforts to increase findability are not things that you can just do by snapping your fingers. It's probably as time-consuming as writing help itself. Another difference with Google, though, is that they have not just one or a small team of people writing content. People find things on Google because there are, there are millions of people writing content on Google. So when you search for something, uh, there are probably dozens of duplicate pages that all have similar content with slightly different keywords. So it's no wonder that your search matches some kind of result. Whereas in a help system, you just have a couple of authors usually, and uh, you know you don't have tons of duplicate content. So if the search doesn't exactly match those keywords, it's kind of out of luck. <coughs> when you're trying to optimize for search and make your content findable for search, it's important to note that not all search engines work the same way. I talked about how Google works, but uh, that's Google. WordPress, their, their built-in search works a lot differently. They sort based on date. Um, SharePoint, they have a whole search scope setting section where you can define a lot of different factors that contribute to search. Uh, but, but do either of these look at how many links point to pages and, and factor that into their algorithm? No. Uh, not that I know of. Uh, MediaWiki, they have these, this concept of namespaces that that content is in. And if you're not searching in the right namespace, you're not going to find what you're looking for. So, for example, comments on pages, uh, like discussion tabs on, on MediaWiki pages, those are not in the main namespace. So they don't show up in the regular MediaWiki built-in search. Author it, uh, for example, if you have... And this may be true for a lot of different systems. It's just one that I was somewhat uh, working with. The word change and changing are not the same. Because change ends in an E. Change has an I in there. And if you search for words, the search results are totally different based on this. Now, there may be a way to try to match stems and so forth. But uh, in the default behavior, that's what my experience was. Flare search... Uh, exact matches supposedly rank high. I was reading kind of their algorithm a long time ago. Uh, I can't remember who, who kind of analyzed it, but they, they have their own things that really um, score high, and one of those is exact matches. So when you try to optimize for search, it's like, well, which search algorithm are we optimizing for? And a lot of times, you may have one, one platform that's embedded in another one. So let's say you have, uh, let's say you have an author it file that you host on SharePoint. So then you're, you've got two algorithms going, and then let's say you want to also make that available in Google. Well, you've got a lot of different different layers, so trying to optimize for search is, is not as easy as, as it may, may seem. Another challenge which, with, with search is that a lot of times users, they just don't know the terms to search for. In the Practical Guide to Information Architecture by Donna Spencer, she uses this example. Um, what what would you call this thing? This uh, this little neoprene 
puffy thing that you put around drinks. She she would ask that to an audience, and uh, <clears throat> apparently in Australia they would call that a stubby holder. In America, I guess they were yelling koozie, and I had never heard either of those terms. Uh, I don't really use those little neoprene drink holders. That's what I would call them. Uh, maybe they're like a thermos or something. I don't know, but. The same thing happens in help. One person calls something a certain word, like reservations. Another person calls it scheduling, you know. So uh, how exactly do you choose the terms? If you choose the official terms of your application, but they don't match what people are searching for, there's going to be a disconnect. But if you use the, the lingo that the users use, which may not be part of your application for whatever reason, uh then how do you, how do they find it, and how do you talk about things when you're using the wrong lingo in your application? So this is another complication. Finally, this is something Peter Morville points out. Search fails to help you discover the unknown unknowns. This is actually a tunnel by my house once. we I was on a bike ride with my kids, and we saw this this tunnel, and we're like, hmm, let's go in there. And it turned out that, turned out that it was just caked with mud on the bottom. Uh, by the time... We all left. We had so much mud that I had to spray down our bikes for about 45 minutes. So um, so Peter Morville, let's see if I have the quote. Yeah, there we go. He's quoting Donald Rumsfeld, a uh, political advisor. Uh, I can't remember. Was he security? Sorry, I should know that more. Um, anyway, so this is back in the Afghanistan days. And uh, he, he was... He's talking about whether you know things or not when it comes to weapons of mass destruction and things like that. He says there are known knowns. There are things we know that we know. There are known unknowns. That is to say there are things we now know that we don't know. Uh, maybe dark matter and things like that. But there are also unknown unknowns. There, these are things we do not know that we do not know. And I think this is classic. This this so describes help. If you've ever interacted with users, a lot of times they think, yeah, you know, I, I kind of know, I know how this application works. I, I feel pretty confident about it. And yet when you probe more of their understanding, you realize that they only have a partial understanding of the application. They don't know that they don't know all this stuff. Um, and uh, so how, do, how is it that how is it you're going to show them what they don't even know that they don't know uh, if all they're doing to find that knowledge is searching within their own domain of what they know? So um, that's a problem with search, and it's one of the shortcomings of search. Here's an example uh, in, in Illustrator. Now, I actually have a little vid YouTube video on this, but Illustrator is one of those applications where I think you could really learn about it for most of your life. Uh, but there's an ability to basically take the attributes of one object, the shading, the stroke, and everything, and just uh, copy those attributes to the other object. And um, who would ever think to, to search copy appearance attributes between objects? Of course, I'm using those terms because now they're in my head. But before, I would have searched for format painter or something. Uh, but, but really, it, it's something I didn't even know that I could do. And one day I was watching a video tutorial and I was like, oh, that's extremely useful. Hadn't even thought I could do that. So that's another limitation of search. And this is why browsing it can be so much more uh, uh, fruitful. You find things. All right, now let's move on to metadata. Um, and uh, 
so so I, I feel like I was um, in love with this idea last year. In fact, I banked this whole presentation at the STC Summit on this concept of metadata. I was so sold on it. And in the end, it, it, it didn't work out. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to basically talk a little bit about my journey and why I think metadata was a, could be a huge tool in findability, but ultimately isn't. So this, the, the, the author that really sold me on this idea is David Weinberger in Everything is Miscellaneous, The Power of the New Digital Disorder. Loved the book. Absolutely the best book I read last year. He's one of the co-authors of the Clue Train Manifesto. And he says that uh, if you walk into a store, for example, Staples, and now this isn't Staples, this is Home Depot, but I walked into Staples and they forbid me from taking a photo of it. So this is a clandestine photo within Home Depot, which are these huge, if you don't have these in Canada, they're these huge uh, home improvement type stores, <clears throat> giant warehouses. You can never find anything in them. Um, unless you know exactly where it is because you've been in there a million times. So he says, in a physical space, everything is pretty much limited to being in one place at one time. You can't just have the same thing in multiple places at the same time because that would violate the laws of physics. But in the digital world, we don't play by, the, by, we don't play by those same rules. Things can be in, in different spaces at the same time. You can have different arrangements. You could, uh, for example, if this whole building were a digital space like a website and you came into the website and said I only want to see doors uh, you could make all the other objects disappear and doors could come to the forefront uh, because those those items maybe have a, a meta tag of door and then you could further drill down and say well I want to see doors for residential homes for for furnace rooms, uh, for these dimensions in these colors using these materials. And as long as the object has all this metadata attached to it, um, then you can completely drill down and find things. Great idea, right? What, what could be more helpful than, than this idea with a help system where you have this many objects and, and users who want to drill into finding things? Um, so... The idea is that first you you look at different facets that your content has and think of to understand facets think of a diamond right it's got a lot of different sides each has a different kind of angle of light so if you look at shoes you could you could identify the following facets uh the brand the color the gender or for men women children uh maybe that's not gender maybe that's age or something um sport uh cross train basketball that kind of thing so you could you could identify a lot of these velcro lace-ups i don't know what whatever facets you could attach to shoes then you could build build a whole site around that um the same thing is is very true with music you could you could attribute a lot of different metadata metadata tags to music the artist's name the track title the album title the year the genre and then when you push that music out to a site like groove shark or or, or other music sites, you can allow people to sort on all those meta, all that metadata. So if somebody searches for the word fire, which is pretty common, maybe as common as the word baby or something in music, uh, then then you can suddenly navigate based on what what do you mean by fire? Do you want the artist's name, or do you want the album song, or do you want something else? And you can sort through all this information and 
and manipulate it dynamically according to what you want to see rather than trying to sort through a static table of contents, which would be impossible, right? Peter Morville says that faceted navigation is arguably the most significant search innovation of the past decade. So Peter Morville is the very, he's like one of the top leaders in this whole um, uh, findability space, um, in the information architecture, that's what I was looking for. Uh, this whole uh, desire to try to make it so that people can can locate things. He said the faceted navigation, really, it's the thing. It's the cat's meow. Well, there's a couple of different ways that, that you could implement this, at least. Uh, you could have dynamic navigation. So let's say you search for a word. Uh, suddenly, on the left, all these filters will appear that are based on your facets, and you can drill down. And you've probably seen this in a lot of different sites. Or you could have a more static navigation where you have like different doorways that you enter based on what you want to see. And I'll show a few examples. So this is one that's right under our noses every time. When you search for something on Google, like the word sets, which is like a very common word, right? You would have to whittle down exactly what kind of set or what, what we even mean by that. Well, you can expand. There's a little filter on the left in Google. And you can browse by the category. Were you looking for news, a recipe, a patent, a book? You know, so you've got all these filters that are, are just facets that help you find the information. There's a great site called sportshoes.com, which uh, Sarah Maddox and Matthew Ellison uh, pointed me to. Um, so this is, this is an example where you can drill down and find shoes based on all these all this metadata meta that you want and so there's no like fixed navigation it's all very dynamic and you can continue to to drill down um, based on these filters that you select it's a great site by the way but they didn't even have basketball shoes i think it must not be an american <laughs> type of site <coughs> all right uh, just because americans are big on basketball that's all uh Another example, if you're on Amazon, they're like the, the paragon of perfectness when it comes to search in so many different ways. But if you search for Beauty and the Beast, on the left, look at all the different ways you can drill, drill down. Well, you can drill down because each of these items has this metadata associated with it. And then your navigation suddenly becomes um, powered by the metadata and you can use it as filters. Awesome idea, right? Who wouldn't want this? Finally, Hulu, if you... Uh, um, use Hulu, and actually I don't even know if it's available in other countries, but uh, they've got different categories, and this is more of like the front door approach, where you choose the different door. You want to look at stuff that's recently added, or that's most popular, or stuff that's like recommended to you by a search engine, or you want to browse by an actual category, or, and then you can do further filtering. So again, this is not like a fixed a fixed um there's not a fixed one single way to navigate the content. All this, all these items can be manipulated based on metadata. All right, and you can apply this to help. You could browse by topic or role or skill level, popularity, status, help format, problem screen. So you could you could at, attach all of this to your to your help. And uh, because it's in small chunks, these are actually little rock cairns in southern Utah. Uh, I was hiking down there one day, and this brilliant idea came to me. It's like Oh, this is exactly, this is a perfect analogy. If you break stuff up into small chunks like this, you can then arrange it in a million different ways, just like this faceted navigation. Uh, Mark Baker points out that you can only chunk stuff down so small, like with an alarm clock, 
um, I bought this alarm clock at a thrift store, took it apart, right? And and now if if you were applying this to help, you could break your content down into these really small chunks so that it could then be manipulated into myriad zillion different ways, but it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense if like none of the small chunks mean anything by their by themselves. Um, this would only really make sense to somebody who's like a like a alarm clock repairman or something. Uh, anyway, so I went through all my help. I had it in a wiki. I chunked it all up in these little tiny bites so that I can manipulate it in different arrangements. Um, I decided on the metadata uh, for the particular application. They had things like ooh, uh, location, popularity, event type, uh, what sort of role people had. And then I, I used a plugin. Um, if you use, not many writers use MediaWiki uh, based on the Writer's UA tool survey. But uh, there's a great extension called the Semantic MediaWiki extension that allows you to basically add metadata to topics and then perform queries and sort them based on what you want to see. So I added that here. And then I ran different queries. For example, let's show all items that are ranked most popular and that have uh, the clerk role. And then it would dynamically kind of generate these lists. I did it for a lot of different things, subject, screen, event type. But uh, ended up with just like, you know, lists of things, which still might might not be bad, but uh, it, it didn't seem to make a splash in among users. In fact, I, I eventually just kind of uh, put it put it aside and kind of an alternative navigation option um, and and I ended it there uh, and I, I think metadata has incredible potential um, but but sometimes users just aren't, aren't ready for it and and you need more at least in my implementation here I, I needed I wanted to do dynamic filtering things like that I just didn't have the technology for it um, I kind of think our tools aren't really capable of the task. Try to get those dynamic filters in there. And you need basically a XML data, database that is rendering things on the fly. And, and no tool that I've run across actually does that. So you'd have to like custom program something, which is usually beyond the scope of most help projects. So at any rate, it's one of those promising ideas that maybe we'll see fruit in the upcoming years as we, as we you know, work with things. All right, so I've been chatting for a while. Um, uh, maybe I'll pause to see if there's any questions. Let's see. Let me consult the uh, chat and see if anybody wants to ask a question. You could also just chime in if you want on the phone. Oh, yes, you have Home Depot. That's good. That's good. Uh, Secretary of Defense is Donald Rumsfeld. Thank you. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> I should know that. Hi, Linda. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. In fact, I was reading reading something. I don't know where, but uh, somebody claimed that Google made its breakthrough because it was able to change uh, erroneous search queries into recommended queries. So if you mistype something, it said, didn't you mean X and it will allow you to search for that? And that was like huge. No other search engine had, had done it at the time. And of course now they have instant results, which take it to the next level. You don't even have to finish searching and you see whether your query is right or not. And, and 
help tools, uh, we're kind of in a, we're, we're, we're behind that by 10 years. It seems like, um, part of it's because technical writers aren't programmers by and large. So we're somewhat dependent on tool vendors if we're going to stay in the help authoring tool space. So I almost think if we want to, if we want to stay in pace and step with the web and their innovation and use things like metadata, d- dynamic results, and things like that, we almost have to use web tools um, that are that are there. And now some of these sites, though, they don't. I mean, they custom program their tools. It's not like you can just download Amazon's platform and use it for your help content, right? But but yeah, there's definitely a, a problem where like we're kind of stuck in the past a little bit and, and at the mercy of tool vendors for technical innovation if we want to stick with those tools. But they're driven by they're driven by demand and need. So I mean obviously tool vendors are they're listening to customers and I think a lot of technical writers aren't aren't really driving those requirements for innovation either. So yeah, uh, I'll talk about some other techniques, but it seems like maybe maybe search fails for for those topics, and you'd have to rely on something else. And and uh, maybe um, maybe what you do then is in the topics that people would search for, you put little cross links in there pointing to those lesser topics. Hey, but that's a great question, and I'm glad to hear that that you have that feedback about Author it because uh, you know we were using Author it or are using Author it in some projects, and that was one of those questions we had, and we're like, well, do we just not understand it, or is this really how it works? <laughs> I was like, and we just kind of left it at that. I was like, all right, but uh, all right, let's let me go on here, um, unless somebody else had a question. All right, so uh, go ahead and mute, mute your phone back if you if you had unmuted it, and uh, we'll keep going here. Let's look at interface text. So, interface text, um, and by interface text, I just mean text directly on the interface, right? So you don't have to send people into a help file; they just are reading the text on the screen, right? This seems like it would solve a ton of problems. You're not forcing them to find anything; you're finding them. There's some principles to keep in mind for this. Uh, one is you want to really be clear. You, you don't have to put interface text everywhere. Just focus on fuzzy parts and pain points and really try to decide, you know, is this the right, are these the right words for the context of whatever you're doing? And I'm talking about like button labels, everything, not just like help text on the screen, but the actual words. In almost every application, there's some there's at least two words or something that confuse users. So focus on those. Um, now, you want to if you do add kind of some help text there, you want to put it near the action that the user is going to perform. And Mike Hughes uh, had an article about this. He says the user's eye navigates or gravitates directly to like a button or a field that they're supposed to complete. They'll skip right over any kind of text that appears below the heading, for example. Uh, so if you want somebody somebody to read it, put it like right below where they should do something on the page. Uh, follow conventions for for interface text. For example, uh, your home button should probably say home rather than front, which is uh, something that happened here. Somebody was like, "Let's call it front." What? Um, there's also uh, error messages that are hugely uh, hugely important but almost impossible to completely ferret out. 
but but there's another example where a user's in need and there's information that you can present to them. Uh, there's no better opportunity than to try to focus on those. Uh, finally, you have to be brief, and this is prob probably the, the crux with interface text, is you have to be brief because too much text, according to MSDN readability or usability guidelines, too much text actually discourages reading. And also you want to, you have to remember that um, our user is going to be constantly using this page and is that help text only going to help them the very first time and then the rest of the time is going to get into their way? If so, you may not want to put it there. There's some, some uh, techniques people have. If you're in WordPress, uh, look and click the little help button sometime. You'll see a drop-down shelf up here. So, so normally you don't see all this text on the screen. It just slides down. And jQuery, with the show and hide effects, really provides a lot of cool features that you can do there, where you can you can make it so this this constant challenge between brevity and like clear explanations that are more lengthy don't have to always fight against each other. You can show and hide. Um, problem with interface text and, and context-sensitive help and putting stuff right on that page the user needs is, is the problem of the forest versus a tree view. Um, <coughs> it usually just tells the user information about where they're currently at. But what if they have a problem that's not related to the page they're on? Uh, for example, I was in this previous page, I it shows help about how to add a new post. Well, what if your question is how to add a page rather than a post? Well, this doesn't have any information about that. You kind of need to back up and see the larger view. And so so while it's helpful for some situations, not helpful for all. Um, there's another uh, technique to try to get around the problem of, of annoying users with a bunch of help information that they no longer need. You can add a don't show this anymore. And we did this for one of our applications, and it's kind of cool. Um, you make it so you can you can add a ton of text, and then they see it the first time, and then it, then it's gone. And Google constantly does this when they, and, and so does WordPress. They have these little caption bubbles that appear the first time they've made some big upgrade, and they want to let you know about a feature, but they don't want to constantly annoy you with that text. All right, uh, another strategy uh, that I think often gets overlooked nowadays in the online world are indexes. Um, I gave, when I gave this presentation, or a similar presentation, it wasn't exactly this, it was quite different actually. Um, at the summit, somebody came up to me afterwards, or wrote to me afterwards, and was kind of shocked that I didn't address indexes with more depth. And I think they are a tried and true method for findability. And, and just because something is online doesn't necessarily mean that the index is is no longer useful because as I mentioned with search people are only searching for words they know whereas the index shows them words that are used in the application that uh, may not be in the user's vocabulary um, you can also leverage a bunch of synonyms um, there's all kinds of alternative indexes you can do too you can do this is these are images from a, a hymn book of all things uh, that has like six or seven different types of indexes in the back. You can search by or look by author and composer, or tune name, title, topic, meter, and so forth. So you can get creative with indexes. You don't just have to do a standard one. Uh, the problems with indexes is that I guess studies show people still prefer to search. Uh, they think it's faster. Indexes are really tedious and hard to create. Um, 
I, I, there's few things I dislike more than actually creating an index. Finally, um, if you're on like a web platform, it's hard to really do an index because there's no like automated tool, whereas most help authoring tools have something in there. So it makes it a lot easier to do if you have a help authoring tool. <coughs> Another tool to try to increase the findability of your content is to create a quick reference guide. Uh, if you've ever given um, somebody a giant manual, even like a 50-page manual, which is short, right? If you've ever given somebody a big chunk of help and, and seen their reaction, it's usually one of despair. People look at that and they just panic. They think, oh man, I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to put aside all my work and focus on this for hours and it's going to be tedious and I hate it. But if you give them a quick reference guide of like two pages, their faces bright up, light up, they they read it, and uh, they love it by and large. I don't know if it necessarily uh, replaces the long guide, but it gets people started and it gives them something where they can actually get through. So that maybe in their mind they think, I can get through two pages, I'll actually read the two pages. Whereas if you give them 50 to 100 pages, they may just not even start because they figure, I don't have the time, not going to try at all. So this is a, I actually gave a whole uh, presentation on this yesterday, and there's a lot of interest in doing quick reference guides. They're not hard to do. The only trick is that you want to not try to cram a zillion words into two pages. Uh, you want to just introduce people to kind of the core functions of the application. And finally, when you're writing it, you don't want to also design it at the same time because you'll battle between writing and design to to great frustration. There are some limitations, uh, as with any of these techniques. It's just kind of a first-time-only need. Um, the content isn't even relevant until a user gets into the interface. You could have two different sources of the help material that you have to then try to maintain. And finally, it's layout intensive. It's, um, it can be kind of hard to do, and there's a lot of challenges in trying to figure out how to design it that, that we don't often have. I mean, we don't have the, the design skills to really make it so that it's easy to design them. Another technique is personalization, and this is uh, simply making it so that when you log in or you're authenticated and somehow the information that's delivered to you is dynamic. So this is this is an example of author at aspect in there. I've never used this before, but the idea is that uh, it looks and sees who you are. For example, let's say you're a customer here rather than an administrator or something, and it's only going to show you the content that that your role is allowed to see. I think personalization is actually a huge kind of trend. I know in a lot of our applications, you log in, and once you log in, it knows, oh, okay, you're in this location. This is your, this is your role. You know, this is, um, this is the group you belong to. That kind of thing, and it's able to deliver information specific to that role. I think help content could be uh, leveraged in the exact same way. But again, this has some problems and limitations. One, you have to have a, a way to identify the user's role. It's hard to authenticate users seamlessly. Like, Let's say they're authenticated in the application they're in, and then they click the Help button, and it goes to a different server, a different system. You have to re-authenticate, re-log in, or do you have to create some single sign-on token that's passed forth, back and forth. Um, 
And finally, what if there's no clear role for a user or the user doesn't even, doesn't even know that they have that role or maybe they should be a different role or they want to see what other roles have? Then you've suddenly got kind of like these silos of, of views and, and there's no easy way to navigate from one to the other. So um, it's not foolproof. Okay, let me pause here and ask if we've got any pressing questions. I, ha I have a few sections left. Um, I don't want to weary anybody, but uh, does anybody have any questions they would like to, to ask? All right, just go ahead and type them if you want. Otherwise, I will get into tagging, which I think is huge. So by tagging, <clears throat> I just mean um, little labels that you add to things. And this is a this is really how things are organized on the web. The the table of contents, the the little tree structure, that's really the domain of of help authoring tools and and few maybe SharePoint. I don't know, but uh, by and large, sites on the web they rely on tags and categories. And the cool thing about tags is that if you tag, uh, you, you can tag the same item, information item, with different labels. So then it can live in the information can live in more than one space because if a user clicks the the category link or the tag link, you know it's going to show all those information items that have that same label. You can have you can have the same or different tags on the same content very easily. Uh, if you look at Wikipedia, <coughs> scroll down to the bottom one of these one of these times and look at the category. Uh, they actually do have categories in Wikipedia, and it's everything is categorized. The weird thing about Wikipedia is that uh, there's this idea that every category should be contained in another category. So if you keep going up the levels of categories, uh, start start anywhere and just keep climbing up. It gets like broader and broader. Uh, sometimes it ends up with like humans and knowledge and <laughs> like topics. Uh, so it's kind of ridiculous. In other words, like nobody's going to start at the top and say, okay, let's see, this is related to humans uh, in North America. You know, it's, so they're not necessarily that useful. And that's perhaps why they're at the very bottom and almost uh, invisible. Uh, one of the problems though, is that you, if you click the technical communication category, uh, you basically just see a flat list of files. So the hierarchy is somewhat, um, it's not as apparent in this sort of tagging world. And tags and categories are the exact same thing. It's just different terminology to refer to them. But yeah, you, you know, it's kind of interesting to look at this list. All of these are pages on Wikipedia that have been categorized as technical communication. Uh, sequence theory, semantic interoperability, scientific literature, you know, CAL's raster file format. All of these seem like they're given equal weight. Uh, Society of Technical Communication is, or for Technical Communication is even on there, but it's just like one amid the list. Uh, software documentation, which is probably like the bulk of what most technical writers do, is is no more apparent than IMRAD and IMSVDX. So, Again, this is this is some of the limitations of the tagging approach. Uh, now, this is somewhat, I don't know if people would consider that this fits, but I think it does. Um, alternative learning modes. I have uh, people that I work with who, no matter how well you write something, how clear you're able to articulate it, even if you, you stick it right in front of the person, they just don't like to read it. They, they Text does not speak to them, and especially when it comes to 
technical instruction. They just don't learn from text. So no matter how much you try to make it findable, they're never going to find it because it's not their mode. It's not their way of learning. So if you want to try to increase the ability of users to find and locate material, you kind of have to branch out into other modes, such as video. Uh, there might be a lot of other modes you could exp explore, maybe illustrations, maybe podcasts. Uh, but but if you're able to put content in different modes entirely, and I don't just mean like different formats, like a long guide, a quick guide, a medium guide, a card. I mean totally different learning modes like video and audio and, and, and illustrations. Then you're going to appeal to a lot of these users. And uh, here's an example from Decky McClelland. He's got uh, uh, tutorials on lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com, uh, about how to use Illustrator. And he takes users uh, from beginning to end through these scenarios. Um, yeah, and so so a lot of times, we, as help authors, we just write individual topics. Uh, but he will take and and take like individual scenarios for example rather than how to use the gradient tool in illustrator it's like well how would you draw a cool looking black cat <laughs> well you'd use probably 10 or 15 different tools and he's going to show you how you use them uh with each other uh so this is kind of a huge it's a different approach that that would really speak to di people in different scenarios to see how all these different topics come together into an orchestra and harmony of, of um, use. So there's some problems with videos. One, is they're hard to search uh, unless you transcribe them meticulously. Hard to skim. Almost impossible to translate when you when you factor in that you've got a an interface text with words on it, not just somebody's voice that you'd have to translate. Um, so they're expensive to create and maintain, and they often require skills that go beyond most technical writers. You've got the whole audio setup and, and video rendering and processing. So, again, it's it's time-consuming. Like all these techniques, they're going to add a lot of time. There's no way to snap your fingers and have in have instant findability. All right, level-based learning is also another approach that I think is pretty cool. Um, this is an example from... Kathy Sierra in Creating Passionate Users. She has these horse guides. Uh, Pirelli, I think, is the name of the, the horse thing. But they take users from, from one level to another. And this is how video games work, too, right? You start out at a low level and you progress up, as well as karate, a lot of different things. Uh, and this is really how a lot of people learn. So if we're trying to you know, get information to people, um, maybe our approach is kind of wampus we throw all the information at a person at once well, they, they need to drink milk before they eat meat right they have to do the very simple things and then they have to do more more uh, medium level things and then they finally move into the advanced level so if you want to organize your content that way you might actually get people to to move through it there's some problems with this uh, one it requires you to really be sophisticated and and how how you plan these things um, you can't just I mean it takes some thought another is that information is not all going to be in one place so let's say you have a user who suddenly wants to find X topic well now you've got six different guides for them and they have to look through each one that's gonna be a pain and finally 
it assumes that your audience is, is patient and that they're in some kind of learning mode where they're actually uh, wanting to learn rather than just going to try to find an answer to a specific question. <coughs> All right, now, I don't think the table of contents is totally something that should be discarded. I think that's still probably the primary way that people expect to be able to go through information. But there are a lot of different ways that you can, or techniques you can use to try to make those table of contents more uh, useful and, and more and speak more to the user. One is card sorting, right? So rather than uh, just trying to figure out the right arrangement yourself, put all the topics in little index cards and have a group of users, have three, four users, try to put them in groups that make sense to them. Uh, this is nothing new. It's just one of those techniques that is, uh, we usually don't do because it takes time and you have to figure out users and, and you know, it's, it's a... It's another task, right? There's another thing that you can do called affinity diagramming. We did this to try to, we did this on a large scale. We had a, our main website where we posted a survey and asked people who were coming to it why they were coming to it and what they were trying to do. And we took all their responses and we grouped them into different piles. And then we kind of looked and said, okay, this, this group, uh, all these people are trying to do X and all these people are trying to do Y over here and so forth. So it gave us an idea about how to possibly arrange the content on the site based on what they're coming for. That's called affinity diagramming, by the way. Um, and yeah, there's lots of different post-it notes. You can kind of do different levels. So if you have lots of small groups, then you can identify the, the main message of that group and then put that into a larger message and an even larger message. So it looks like an inverted tree, really, when you're done. There's another method called tree jack, and this is this is uh, really interesting. You you in this method, this is a uh, tree jack is actually like a brand name of one of these usability tools um, from Optimal Workshop. So with this, you have your hierarchy, your table of contents, and then you you have a list of tasks, and you ask the user to try to guess where they would go in this table of contents to find information to do that task. And your table of contents doesn't actually have the, the, to the, the text of the topics, it just has the titles. And this, being an online tool, uh, tracks what folders they expand and the path they go. And then it gives you this sort of chemical-looking readout that shows you what paths they took to try to find that task. So when I did this with, with some or actually, we had a usability intern do this, and I was looking at the results. But when we did this for some of the help, I realized that a lot of the times users would go down a path, and the green paths, are, sorry, they mean success. Red means they went down the wrong path. Uh, another color means they like went down the wrong path, but then they turned around and went down the right path and so forth. But I realized that uh it could make sense to go down a lot of these wrong paths. I could see their logic and say, oh, yeah, you know, in that, I could see why that might seem like an FAQ. You know, I could see why somebody might think that would be here. Part of it, I concluded, is that language itself is just slippery. We don't have words that mean a very specific thing to every person, especially in a software application. You have a word, I mentioned this word earlier because it kind of stuck out, the word reserve versus schedule uh 
yeah, it just, you know, they, they mean different things to different people. And uh, some people thought it was synonymous, others didn't. And so the paths they took totally made logical sense, even though they weren't the correct ones. All right, so I'm wrapping it up here. Um, Mark Baker, he's one of my favorite bloggers. Every page is page one. I think he's really insightful. But he has a post about whether findability is, is solvable. Is it is it an intractable problem? And he says, different people see the world too differently for us to ever to solve findability. Finding the information you need will always be work, will always be a skill that people have to learn. We can help, but we cannot solve. Our efforts in the field of findability ought to be focused not on achieving perfect, effortless findability, which is unattainable, but at easing the work of finding that the user has to do for themselves. So uh, I think that if we could use an analogy, another science analogy, um, the, uh, a good way to look at this is perhaps by tracing or going back to Pythagoras. So he's an early Greek, uh, like 500 BC. And um, I was recently reading about this concept called the music of the spheres. So apparently Pythagoras predates Plato by about 100 years. And he noticed an interesting relationship between music and ratios. He observed that if you cut a string from some music instrument that produces a note by three quarters it plays the next note on the scale of their notes at the time. And if you cut it by two-thirds, it plays the next note. And then by half, it plays the next note. So there was, a, this, there was an exact re relationship between the ratio of the string and the note it played. And it all tied in with these perfect ratios, half, two-thirds, three-quarters. So he was fascinated by the idea that notes aligned perfectly with whole numbers. They followed predictable proportions. He extended the idea of these perfect numerical ratios that he observed in music to astronomy and theorized, theorized that these ratios expressed through music actually defined the orbit of the planets and moons as well. And in fact, if sound could travel through space, you would hear the spheres produce a similar music since they followed similar ratios for their movement. Well, I think that when we search for findability answers, we're often looking for these perfect ratios that will show us the pattern of the entire universe, you know, that's going to solve it in one brilliant snap. Uh, but reality is much more complicated. It doesn't break down into an E equals MC squared type of formula. Reality is more messy. And, and although I'd, I'd like to have an epiphany where I discover a simple solution to the whole problem of findability, I doubt that's going to happen, just as there aren't perfect whole number ratios that explain every object's movement and path through the universe. Um, all right, so my information, if you'd like to contact me, is uh, here. I have a blog at idratherbewriting.com, and I've got this ongoing series on this topic, findability. If you look in the sidebar, kind of lower, you'll see a link. And I've got like 40 posts on this topic, a lot of different things to explore there. And I'd love to get your feedback on what you think you know, is, is the way to improve findability, something I perhaps didn't cover here. I'd uh, love to benefit from your insight. So thanks again for attending. Uh, I really appreciate this opportunity. I love, uh, I love this topic. I love um, 
interacting and sharing information with chapters and other groups. So thank you for this opportunity to present.